Hi, and welcome to Vital Processes. On this episode, we will be doing the discussion for the Beasts of Burden zine, which is something that we've hoped to do for some time, and we are finally here. And just as a note, in case anyone hasn't listened to the reading of the zine, whilst Googling, I realized there's actually another anarchist zine called Beasts of Burden, which is about disability or ab- and ableism. However, this is not that zine. This one is about animal rights and communism. So yeah, just so yeah. that everyone listening is aware. I was mm-hmm. not previously aware of that disability zine. So yeah. Okay. You know, there's a there's a book called Beasts of Burden as well, which is by Sonora Taylor, Animal and Disability Liberation. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that. It's, it's, no, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a really interesting phrase, though, isn't it? Beasts of burden, which we'll get on to later. Yes. Um, yeah, so uh, I can see why it's, it's used. Yeah, it's mm. got a lot of, uh, it has a lot of illusions, or it can play into a lot of illusions, I guess, mm. which is why it's a handy phrase. Yeah. So the zine that we're using um, is actually one that was published in 2019 but initially Bisa Burton was published back in October 1999 so the version that we have has a 2004 introduction and also a 2019 introduction so the 2019 intro was written by Paul Gravett and what Paul Gravett says is that one of the things that interested him with the cover of Bisa Burton is the artwork is actually of a male looking person simian like with simian like features hurling a rock and with a, a kind of hat that says anarchy um, or anarchism written on it i think probably anarchy i found that quite interesting because it's not like a a cover that's showing you like something you might accept, uh, expect from like an animal liberation zine like something cool <laughs> or like, you know, um, revolutionary or or militant, you know, people with balaclavas or something is actually showing you the opposite, which is the way that dehumanization and animalization of the working class has been going on for quite some time. And so this is going back to, it says the days of the Irish Land League, which I don't really know when that is, but I'll assume it's something like maybe, I don't know, 17th, 18th century. Yeah, I think it's, I think maybe 19th, but yeah, something like that. I know that there's um, quite a lot of interesting artwork from that time, Mm. uh, which shows the people of like the Irish Land Leagues kicking hunts off their land, like a lot of anti-hunting action. Yeah. Right. Cool. That's good to know. So, yeah. So here you have, you know, and that's interesting you say that because often SABs are portrayed by certain countryside folk and, and pro-hunt folk as kind of um, thugs, aren't they? Yeah. And so here's your 19th century thug. Um, but it, but what's interesting about it is that, you know, it's showing you that there's, there's that link. You know, we often hear in the mainstream vegan movement that human politics don't come into animal liberation and so on. But obviously animal and human liberation has always been linked because part of the process of dehumanization is applying animal-like characteristics to people that you want to denigrate. So right from yeah. the start, you know, it's it's kind of there. It's making that link that we'll discuss further between human politics um, and, you know, animal, animal liberation issues. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. So another interesting thing about the intro 2019 is that the person writing the intro says that the Beasts of Burden zine was an attempt to promote dialogue between the non-vegan left and animal liberationists, and that this didn't succeed. That's why we're still having that conversation now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it seems to me this is going to be, I don't want to say never ending, but I mean, it, it's kind of disappointing that back in 1999, and here we are in 2021, well, this was written in 2019, this intro that that gulf is still there seemingly between the non-vegan left and the animal liberation movement. So there's more work to be done. Yes. Although 
I'd say that there's greater uptake of uh, veganism and animal issues within anarchists or kind of radicals than there is the other way around, mm. uh, potentially, at this moment in time. Mm. Um, so perhaps it's kind of worked a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly not in any, certainly not in the way that I guess the authors of the zine had intended. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe not on the scale that they wanted to see by now you know, yeah. or by then, by 1999. Yeah, because there was the anti-globalization stuff going on in the late 90s. What the zine is saying is that, you know, the anarchists and communists were kind of focusing on that. And you had in the animal liberation movement kind of anti-vivisection shack and stuff like that. And uh, those things didn't really meet. I mean, we probably are in a better position now than we have been. It seems like, I don't know. I don't really know how to, how to compare the two, actually, but <laughs> some kind of empirical evidence it'll all just be like speculation, right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it is very speculative, and it's in some ways some things are stronger now, and in other ways they're much weaker than they ever were, So, mm. or at least mm. weaker than they have been for many decades. The first part of Beasts of Burden, essentially a briefly plotted history of the relationship between humans and non-human animals, and attempts to draw out the ways in which non-human animals have been the basis for uh, human civilization, how they've been kind of like the silent partner, as it were, in the building of, of human civilization over let's say 10,000 years. And so I guess the the question about that is uh, perhaps something we can come to after discussing this first part. But the question to keep in mind is why is understanding this long history important? Something else that I wanted to raise in conjunction with this idea of the relationship between humans and non-human animals throughout history is the work of Jason Ribel, who uh, I guess more f- famously uh, has published Fear of an Animal Planet, which is about, I think, animals biting back or hitting back mm-hmm. uh, against their human captors and, and etc. But he also wrote a really interesting historical essay, I guess, called Animals Are Part of the Working Class, which covers sort of the pre-capitalist period, the uh, sort of mercantile period through to today and about the ways in which animals have played the same roles that in humans we would call the working class and Mm. and, you know his argument is a, a marxist argument which says that one way of understanding the history of human non human animal relations is to recognize animals obviously not all animals but let's say farmed and domesticated animals um, as part of the uh what we would you know consider in human terms the, the working class mm. uh, it doesn't really put across any sort of grand argument it really is just kind of like lots of details but it is uh sort of a really fascinating essay that yeah picks out sort of individual stories as well as kind of like group and collective stories of animals throughout uh the past few hundred years of history mm-hmm. And um, I think reading that in conjunction with something like the first part of this Beasts of Burden essay is, um, yeah, it's, it's a really good kind of introduction to thinking of non-human animals in, in this way. Mm. Yeah, I don't know much about that, but one of the ones, the animals that um, I really think about when you mention things like that is um, horses. If we, if we went back 100 years I mean, before cars were commonplace, horses were everywhere in cities. Yeah. Like doing so much work. I mean, it would be such a common sight just to to see and hear horses all the time. And I'm sure a lot of them were just worked like horribly. There's obviously some people who had cared for them because the more you care for a horse, the longer they should be able to do their job. But then also if they're kind of quite replaceable. so. Yeah, whenever you look at old photos of cities, 
Mm. Um, you always see that. And then animals, um, I suppose it's not really, it's not really related. Well, I suppose it is a little bit, but um, animals used in war as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. obviously um, I'm not massively familiar with that, mm-hmm. but there are obvious examples, I guess, like Warhorse film slash uh play and um the use of of dogs uh for all sorts mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout yep. throughout the history of war yeah and carrier pigeons as well to send yeah. messages yeah. probably the more you look into that there'll just be a whole host of animals that we'd never even considered that we used yeah um, yeah for real so did we want to move on to the bit about primitive communism then yeah, well, I think the only thing I wanted to say about that is it feels like we need to reiterate this because I think there's a misunderstanding of like what capitalism is and what communism is. So I just wanted to, I guess, reiterate what is meant by capitalism and what is meant by communism yeah. in this text because either, you know, some people may not have listened to the reading and may just be coming straight into this part. Mm-hmm. So they don't necessarily reading how it's defined in, in, the, in the text. But also I, I think... It's good to just state that either way, which is that capitalism is basically universal in the world today. There's different, I guess, like uh, flavors of capitalism in different parts of the world, but fundamentally they all kind of operate on the same capitalist basis and largely a kind of like neoliberal capitalist idea mm-hmm. is kind of spread through the world, delivered you know, by the US to most parts of the world, <laughs> to be honest. And when we talk about communism, there are understandably a very strong associations uh, between the term communism and Soviet Russia and the Soviet bloc uh, mm. during the Cold War. And you could perhaps say that they aren't communist. As someone that doesn't identify as a communist, I'm not going to say either way, but certainly they don't represent the only form of communism mm. and uh, certainly not the type of communism that this zine that beast of burden is is talking about mm. so yeah I've got, I've got a note here which i can't remember what post this was in but our friend of the podcast george martin uh used mm-hmm. cuba and north korea example as examples of non-capitalist countries mm-hmm. um that treat animals badly mm-hmm. in the world today but apart from anything cuba certainly isn't communist mm-hmm. north korea perhaps more arguably is something like communism but mm-hmm. they certainly don't represent the decentralized and egalitarian forms of communism that this book is talking about which is you know it's like what is it it's like a stateless moneyless classless society yeah and i think many not all for sure but many anarchists would say that anarchy is essentially or anarchism is a way of reaching uh communism so they kind of come to the same end point mm-hmm. but where anarchists and communists differ is like how to how to get there yeah but also it's very important to say that like not all anarchists identify in that way or, or would say that because there are many anarchists who just reject any form of communism uh, and very much talk about anarchy as a sort of separate from communism but that's a story for another day <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> yeah i mean so my kind of basic understanding of it or the way i kind of try and separate it in my head is that you've kind of got state communism which is kind of what happened with the eastern bloc so that still retained hierarchy so it's basically another form of having states and if like the essential nature of communism is to get rid of classes and hierarchy then but then i know some communists will say that we have to, it's that thing about dual power, isn't it? Where you resist the state as it is now, but yeah. then you like through like workers unions and cooperatives and things, you take control of the state apparatus in order to transfer power so that you can run society for a while. And then you would, somehow kind of deconstructs all these hierarchies yeah i I think i think also the argument would would be that it was that kind of like you know the the soviet bloc Mm. um was a necessity because they weren't living in a vacuum they were living in a world that was dominated by capitalism and so you needed a force that was able to 
fight capitalism in terms of resources and and you know mm-hmm. might basically uh, in in order to then progress onto a, a worldwide communism. Mm. I don't care either way. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not that interested in in sort of <laughs> that type of communism. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, I yeah maybe they have a point. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But yeah, and also uh, sorry, I didn't really explain myself in terms of what capitalism is mm. and we've talked about this before which is capitalism isn't just uh, an economic system it's a it's a system of social relations and how we are related to each other and how we are related to the means of production and how we are related to resources etc mm-hmm. so it's it's not it's not just like billionaires and mm. homeless people it's more than just like economics and and finance yeah and i think that's why capitalism is so like dangerous really because it seems like a just a market place it's yeah. just you know like it's easy to think that there was just a time where people used to barter stuff and then money came along and capitalism is just the the final way of doing things what other kind of way would you doing thing would you do things would you buy stuff would you get hold of stuff You'd have to trade it in some way, you know. It does limit the imagination because actually just imagine that you didn't have to spend money to get food yeah. or like electricity or, you well, know. That's, 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 the, yeah. that's the argument of, uh, are you familiar with Mark Fisher and capitalist realism? A very little bit. I haven't actually read it, but it's definitely on the list, yeah. I know he's passed away a few years ago, hasn't he? But there's been some writing that's followed people have kind of taken his theory and extended it a bit since then yeah um yeah he's yeah he 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 would identify as a communist but i think he's a um yeah his his books uh, or at least what i've read of his writings are are really good Mm -hmm. and capitalist realism specifically the book is basically about the idea that capitalism has so dominated our minds and our imagination that we can't even imagine anything else mm. outside of capitalism mm-hmm. um that it's it's so ingrained in in most of our minds that we you know we can't for example imagine a gift economy mm-hmm. uh functioning f- uh on any large scale because we're so ingrained with the idea of a capitalist economy mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i guess it's kind of a bit of a take on there's like a uh a phrase which has been attributed to various people including like zizek mm. uh which is it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of communism mm-hmm. uh, sorry end of capitalism. Got yeah. the end of capitalism yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> so it's kind of like a book link version of that So in 1.1, Animals and Primitive Communism, there's a couple of things I wanted to pick up on. Just the, like, I'm always wary when this is mentioned. It says that diet was previously, but that humans were kind of pretty much almost plant-based. Hominids emerged about 25 million years ago, from which evolved various species of apes, including about 250,000 years ago, Homo sapiens. Dental and other evidence suggests that, like most modern species of apes, these hominids were primarily vegetarian. Humans do not have the sharp teeth, retractable claws, or digestive systems common to carnivores, although early humans, like other hominids, may have sometimes scavenged meat killed by other animals. Diet was probably based almost entirely on plant foods. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to argue with this too much. I don't, like, I'm not a anthropologist or a a nutritionist or anything like that um i'm just always wary when we like that we shouldn't kind of romanticize humans before this twelve thousand years ago when agriculture really started um you know when we really started domesticating animals on a Mm. larger scale because i think there's a tendency in mainstream veganism anyway to do that um to to act like or to say that um you know that humans have basically always been vegan and it's just like we've only become kind of corrupted since that domestication of animals when agriculture yeah. supposedly twelve thousand years ago i also think agriculture began a lot longer than that uh, in all different parts of the world so there's this kind of fertile crescent theory 
that agriculture began 10 to 12,000 years ago in kind of roundabout where modern day Iraq is. But there were people in other parts of the world also doing agricultural type things. So anyway, first of all, I think we are omnivores. I think we can eat meat. Like it wouldn't, we're definitely not herbivores. And yes, I know we're definitely not carnivores. I've seen like there's a meme that has like, um, that basically says that humans are herbivores because our teeth look like a kind of like a camel's or something like that. You know, it's like these mm-hmm. teeth with zero, you know, very flat teeth with, with no um, canines and stuff. So, yeah, I think the mainstream veganism tends to kind of romanticize that a bit. And I think we're maybe, you know, probably were mostly plant based, but there's also some cultures are almost entirely meat based. Hmm. So it kind of depends where you are in the world and which time frame we're talking about. So I just don't think we should get too carried away with that. Yeah. My counterpoint to that would be that there does seem to be uh, archaeological or scientific evidence to suggest that meat eating was minimal in certainly many human cultures pre 10,000 years ago. Um, and I've got a quote, there's a quote from a 2016 New Scientist article mm-hmm. that says, archaeologists tend to emphasize the role of meat in ancient human diets, largely because the butchered bones of wild animals are so likely to be preserved at dig sites. Mm. That reminded me of an interview with Leila Abdul-Rahim. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with her she's a vegan anarcho-primitivist writer she was interviewed by which side podcast which i was a big fan of i don't know if if you ever listened Mm. to that no not familiar with that one it's like an old vegan anarchist podcast that ran for years um but sadly stopped putting out episodes i think in maybe 2017 but in her interview in Witside podcast, she talks about this idea and she used the analogy of history as being written by the winners mm. as an analogy for our impression that um, the diets of, of the past were dominated by hunting rather than gathering. Mm. Essentially, that it's because meat eating is so prevalent now. Obviously, we kind of view history through that lens, but also because when you kill and butcher an animal, bones stick around. But when you pick a you know when you're picking berries or, or vegetables yeah. don't really get the remains of of those um hanging around for fifteen thousand years yeah that's really interesting so yeah it's interesting that you know kind of like we were talking about how capitalism it's kind of hard to imagine what a non-capitalist world would be like or a communist world or an anarchist world or whatever um and m- many people and I think even vegans, I mean, even I struggle to figure what would a a non-meat-eating world look like mm. and, like, how would you get there? And But then if you think about it and look at that evidence that you've um, covered there, it's happened before. I know things are different now <laughs> and we've got to work from, like, where we are now. So it's that thing about, as well, not going back to a golden age of, you know, we're, we're not going to go back to some sort of golden age where, you know, we're going to live in, in, well, you know, I suppose this comes into, you, you know, you uh, mentioned green anarchism and stuff like that a lot. I suppose there are some people who would like us to go back to sort of pre-industrial ways maybe and so on, but I don't think that's going to happen. But certainly that is something that is worth imagining as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't know if this is true, but I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and say that even though uh, most prehistory humans probably did spend most of their time eating plants and and fruits and uh, f- you know f- fungi mm. etc. Because if nothing else, uh, I think like it says in in the zine that hunting requires more energy than than gathering. Mm-hmm. Probably also most humans weren't vegetarian they were going to be eating meat at some point and if they weren't eating fish or mammals then they may very well have been eating insects oh yeah that's a good point so yeah i, I definitely ultimately you know i agree with what you said initially which is not to romanticize a sort of prehistoric vegetarian past for humans because uh, that probably didn't exist but uh, it's more important to look forward to see how we can draw out what we know today into a 
into a sort of a, a better future. Yeah, yeah. We're here with the factory farming, and we've got to move from there forward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So 1.2, domestication and domination, is an interesting one because um, it looks at this thing that we mentioned earlier about how agriculture in the Fertile Crescent at least began around ten to 12,000 years ago. And there's a few theories going around about how did humans come to dominate animals. And one of the theories is that humans kind of settled down the reason humans settled down is because of agriculture. Um, they needed to stay in one place um, to keep an eye on the crops and things like that. And they also started domesticating animals. And so they didn't kind of need to be nomadic anymore. And this kind of process of, I don't, I don't even know what the right word for it is, but I don't know if it's oppression yet at this stage, but this process of keeping animals then actually leads into humans um, having hierarchical positions over each other because of things like the division of labor. And then the other kind of theory is that actually there was an emergence of social elites in things like city-states, and that this is what led to the creation of agriculture because these elites wanted to accumulate wealth so um, you know, and cattle still in some societies today, for example, cattle is wealth. So there's those two kind of theories floating about. And I think we were discussing when we were planning this episode, do we even need to know which one came first? Is it important? And, you know, why? Yeah, because it would be very easy and probably um, there's a lot of evidence for it to point to the human exploitation or systemic oppression of non-human animals as being an original form of hierarchy building but at the same time you know could you may very well be just as easy to point to uh patriarchy and the division of of sex or gender as um an original form of of hierarchy building and you know how i don't know if we can ever really know which came first but also ultimately does it matter that much which came first mm -hmm. they probably have essentially they kind of evolved at the same time mm. in in interacting with each other um across different you know geographic spaces yeah it is it's uh, it's one of those things that i mean we know how these oppressions interlink with each other now so we can we know what to work with or work against you know mm. so i suppose one interesting point about this conversation is that you will often see the kind of right-wing kind of conservative type vegans use this particular bit of history and they will say things like um, it is precisely because humans dominated animals first that human oppressions came about so if you then make the world go vegan magically human on human oppression will disappear <laughs> even though these same people are the ones who always say things like, well, human issues don't actually matter, um, you know, because the animal so-called Holocaust, um, in their words, is, you know, the worst and biggest injustice to ever happen. So it's yeah. all kind of really messy and mixed up, but, but they're very keen on this is supposedly a very, like, very clear point for them, you know. This, this, yeah. is, this is it. Yeah. This is the this thing. Is it. This is when humans started you know um on this like horrific path and i think you've described it i don't know if this was on a previous episode or just in conversations that um you've described it as like the original sin you know <laughs> yeah so, which is kind of biblical as well which is kind of ties in with a lot of uh spiritual type veganism going around in the mainstream movement what you were saying about how some vegans might be saying that um solving the animal the question the problem of, of animal exploitation or oppression is like once we do that everything else will just kind of magically disappear really reminds me of uh, the sort of 
socialists and, and communists and, and anarchists who say that we need to liberate our class first. We need to liberate the working class and mm. all other issues, feminism, uh, gender issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They can they can be resolved after the revolution. Mm. And yeah, it's it's a, it's a bullshit argument, mm. no matter who says it. Really, yeah, yeah, totally. And also, I mean, with the um, the vegans who say this, it's 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 really a bypassing uh, mechanism for them. So what they're basically yeah. saying is, look. I'm just going to focus on animal issues and I'm not going to, I therefore don't have to be concerned with any human issues because once we've solved this animal thing, all these human issues will go away, you know, so don't give me a hard time about not bothering about racists, sexists and so on. It's like, okay, yeah, that's uh, that's a nice easy get out for you, you know, Uh, it's just Mm. ridiculous. Yeah. And just on one point about the sort of hierarchy, the development of hierarchy, it name checks John Zerzan right at the beginning in that first paragraph. Uh, and John Zerzan is maybe the sort of most famous anarcho-primitivist writer, thinker, mm-hmm. broadcaster. And I would definitely describe this section, uh, domestication, uh, domestication and domination, as a sort of anarcho-primitivist understanding of human history but that understanding being that's like because we domesticated animals we then started domesticating ourselves and that the process of domesticating other animals is also a process of domesticating ourselves but mm. another writer definitely you know one of my favorites peter gaudelos um pointed out in in his book worshiping power uh, and this this is a quote Primitivism can make a legitimate ethical argument against sedentary civilization and animal husbandry, but on a theoretical level, it cannot account for hierarchical cultures in some hunter-gatherer groups, nor for agricultural societies with high population densities that were resolutely anti-authoritarian and ecocentric before colonization. So I think he makes a really important point there that like agricultural societies, uh, mm. post-domesticated societies, have also been egalitarian and anti-authoritarian. There's no sort of like fatalistic link between exploiting animals or like, yeah, animal Mm. domestication uh, and having a, like a a non-egalitarian society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But obviously uh, for people like you and I, a non-egalitarian society would also include animals. Mm. Yeah. So I guess what I'm just saying is that like, this section provides like quite a unified and simple story of human development, which is fine because it's just a zine and it's meant to be short. Mm-hmm. But in, in reality, obviously, the like, human history has been chaotic mm-hmm. and messy mm-hmm. and completely non-linear. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. So I uh, see what you're saying there. It's, it's that thing just to remember that... Um, like there have been so many different cultures around the world at different times and human history is very long. There's never been just one way to be. So it's like, yeah, we, we, we can't say, even when we're looking towards the future now, I, I don't think we can say there's, there's one way of being in society. It's actually what, what would be better and more realistic because this is how people are, is like a pluralistic society with many where kind of where difference is celebrated and where you know there isn't necessarily going to be one form of government to to for, for everyone in the world to follow you know, mm. it needs to be contextual depending on where you are um and just what works there uh, and what people in that area agree what works for them that might be different you know what's working in um rojava now in northeast Syria or west is it in northern Syria is uh, uh yeah northeast. northeast so yeah what's working in Rojava now in northeast Syria might not work in the UK I think but maybe discuss this before I would, <laughs> yeah yeah I'd, I'd argue it definitely wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. I, <don't> think. <laughs> I mean if, if we start doing the work now <laughs> maybe in yeah, 100, in 100 years. years then you know but it's, it's those kind of things but but you can still learn from what's going on there and some some things yeah. you can take and some things you might not so it's things like that it's just it's that thing about if we're going to be imagining the future i think of it as futures not the future you know it's just multiple mm-hmm. futures like you say it's that it's kind of that like systems thinking approach to things <laughs>
so I, I just wanted to clarify on, on this section because I, I don't think it's necessarily that well explained because it is quite a short section mm. on exactly why animals are wealth or represent wealth. And that's because, as we have already discussed in this podcast, their utility to humans and human society. Mm-hmm. And that means all the animals, whether it's cows or horses or bees, are used not just in terms of the materials that they could give, so you know, leather or milk or honey or meat, but also in terms of what they could actually do, like their their physical capacities. So as we talked about to some extent earlier, you know, horses uh, played such a huge role in human society for such a long time because of their physical capabilities. They could pull a lot, they could move fast, um, etc., etc. And I think that's important to understand because the way that animals exist in many parts of the world today and certainly in the parts of the world where most vegans will be so kind of like you know the the developed world or the global north or a a suitable term is that the animals that we use farmed animals or animals that are exploited as a physical resource essentially kind of live in a in a life or death state they don't they don't have that much of a history in in terms of like an individual history in human society Mm. they basically they live in a farm they're tucked out of out of sight in a in a barn or or a cage for far less than their actual lifespan, and then the, and then they just die, right? Mm. But we don't we don't see you know we don't generally see many horses on the streets that we might see the same horse pulling the same carriage for five years or mm-hmm. or ten years. Mm. So I think just the presence of animals in in our society, just you know, let's say Britain um, today, is just so different now from what it was mm-hmm. 200 years ago mm-hmm. i guess i just wanted to highlight it because just our relationship as a as a culture as a society is just very different mm. now it's not necessarily any better or worse but it's just very different from what it was 200 years ago mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and we obviously don't have relationships with farmed animals apart from a, a few farms where you might be able to go and you know some farms have open days and things like that but those are just for show it's not like genuine relationship building with animals or anything. Farmers will say they have good loving mm. relation. Not well. Sometimes they say they love their animals. Sometimes they say they just have sort of you know civil sort of relationships with their animals, their animals. I'm saying, yeah. So and that obviously works for the meat industry because you don't want to think of your food as someone with a history and with a any sort of family or emotional kind of bonding going on. Mm. But it does strike me that um, animals become less and less visible, I think. You know, if you even just look at the, in, in biomass terms, how most of the birds in the world now are actually chickens in terms of biomass, I think. Mm. When you're born into the world, you're you your understanding of the natural world and the animals around you the 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 example that comes up a lot is people say you know older people say um say older people older people than me will say something like you used to drive through the countryside and you would just have loads of bugs splattered all over your window and now you don't get that now if you're Mm. born um 10 years ago and you drive through the british countryside you probably have hardly ever seen any insects splattered on your window but if you ask someone 50 years ago it would probably be a very different story and there has been some experiments i think in europe where they've done this and they've worked out that yeah and i think we know that you know insects are also uh suffering um and numbers are declining so but as as a human you only know what you know so if you don't know if you were never if you never went through a time in your life where it was noticeable that there were a lot more insects you just think the number of insects that you see around at the moment are the number of insects that there are there. So it's this thing about being denatured, mm-hmm. the world's being be de- denatured. But as new generations come along, we don't realize how bad it is because we can only know what we can know, you know? You can read about it and stuff, but it's that, that yeah. kind of experience that if we were walking down the street 200 years ago and it was just horses everywhere, that's a very different experience to now. Yeah. I think this is a bit of a, this can be a bit of a problem in term, in sort of like the animal rights 
media or the animal rights discussions as, as there is kind of like a historical amnesia in in the sense that like it's almost presented as though the history the entire history of non-human animal exploitation by humans is exactly the same as it is mm-hmm. today like it's always been like horrific factory farming and etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's it's not and i think it hasn't been and again that's not yeah. to say that it was better for a horse or a cow mm-hmm. you know, 500 years ago but i think if you're going to have serious discussions you do need that that nuance and one really easy way of doing that is just to look at actually yeah the, the history of um animal mm-hmm. human animal relations mm-hmm. uh, like social relations because it has changed just even you know even in in the cities that you and i live in you know if you to look at just look at photos or paintings mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. hundreds of years ago <laughs> and you can yeah. you can see how different it is and so again it's, it's to do with this i guess in some ways it's to do with this like broadening of imagination like we've talked about earlier so that we can conceive of, of different relations even if they're only slightly different yeah exactly <laughs> that goes some way to answering that question that i put out at the beginning which is you know why is understanding the this long history important because nuance is important for for like serious discussion and serious thinking about um like possible futures and possible Mm. um alternatives but also it's important not to just fall into like a what sometimes comes across as like a a fantasy of of the animal industry that is presented by uh by sort of some vegans and animal rights people as this kind of like Mm. monolithic Ent- like destructive entity that's um existed forever and you know how can how can we ever escape it <laughs> mm. or that it's only the factory farming that really matters yes yeah. before the 1950s kind of there were hard you know there was hardly any animals about <laughs> you know just i don't know don't know what happened but you know just um it's kind of yeah there's there's no commentary on that really in the mainstream movement no and also you know the whole the whole point of of this scene presenting this uh this history is because once we start actually looking at the history of uh human animal social relations we can see just how intertwined everything is it's not Mm -hmm. it's not just Mm -hmm. a history of humans have exploited animals it's a history of the exploitation of of non-human animals is part of a system that is a very complex system that includes exploitation of cows and sheep etc yeah it's a thing about different levels of exploitation depends on the you know the relationship between the animals and the humans depends on the species of animal um is it an animal to be hunted is it an animal to be domesticated as a pet is it an animal to be used in another way like the carrier pigeons and so on it's like just you know there's all these different kind of ways to exploit animals and it's like if you're just going to focus on that there's apparently just this one big evil um way and that yeah so there's only one way that humans exploit animals it's really yeah it's not very helpful no, it's not. It's, it's yeah. not helpful. It's helpful if you just want to sell something, which is kind yeah. of what a lot of a lot of people want to do. Whether it's mm-hmm. you know literally sell something or if it's selling an image or a brand, it's easy mm-hmm. to just have this one monolithic evil entity. But I think for people that want to discuss serious strategies and and tactics and possible alternatives uh, and possible alternative futures, you can't live in a fantasy world of of one big bad evil. One of the things that I wanted to discuss in this first section under 1.9 was vivisection and how it states that um, this started in the late 17th century. I think it's interesting because obviously during this time, it was the kind of Enlightenment uh, era. So kind of science replaced God in kind of like the Western imagination anyway. So um, there was this shift from, you know, God being sort of where power lies to actually power lying within man 
and obviously not even woman, just man, you no. know, the able-bodied white male of Europe. Rationality becomes really important. Obviously, there was a lot going on in the sciences around then. And it's just kind of interesting uh, and kind of twisted that around this time is when vivisection animal experiments started happening kind of on a larger scale and became sort of a formalized way of, of doing these things um, in the name of science, you know. And so when we're talking about history and historical amnesia and stuff, I think it's important as well to to just note that this had a this had a starting point. I'm sure before this there was occasionally there was probably weird stuff going on. I'm sure people have always kind of experimented on animals in some <laughs> ways. But, you know, the kind of the formal process, uh, I'm not sure formal is the right word, but the kind of medical establishment taking this on board and it becoming part and parcel of medicine, really. Yeah, I sent you that article by Brian Luke, which is kind of about this, mm -hmm. with the excellent title, Animal Experimentation as Blood Sacrifice, where he kind of argues that the symbolic value of an animal experimentation replaced the idea of blood sacrifice which was usually you know of or broadly of, of animals i think human blood sacrifice is relatively rare despite some sometimes the impression may of of you know of non-european cultures being otherwise but at the same time it may be fair to say that kind of science replaced god in in sort of like the the cultural imagination but also, you know, uh, science is, in, in terms of what it wants to do, has, has proved very valuable to us. Mm. Although I'm very much, I don't know, I would probably fall into kind of like the post-left or, or kind of a green anarchist general way of thinking. I'm, I guess I'm, mm. I'm not like totally anti-science because it's also done a lot of good things. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's that thing about, could it have still done a lot of good things without animal experimentation? I would say, yes, I'm not a, a scientist or a medical person, so I don't really know, but I think that it it would have been worthwhile not doing those animal experiments still. I guess we wouldn't know what we, we wouldn't know, right? Mm. So yeah. If we'd never done it, you wouldn't know, but the modern kind of animal experimentation industry, I mean, it's been disproved, right, that actually animal experiments usually don't help to give you the answers that you want it's actually more an industry yeah i think it's actually like it's it's not even like a scientific expect, expectation these days i think mm. it's almost just like a governmental regulatory expectation mm -hmm. that many if not most governments just kind of expect a lot of medical advances to be tested on on animals just for the sakes of paperwork the one last bit I just wanted to mention from from this section 1.9, it says at one point, uh, the same drug companies which claim to be crusading for human health would rather let people die than allow their patented products to be made available on a non-profit basis. Broadly true, but actually the AstraZeneca vaccine for for COVID, that company actually has supplied that on a non-profit basis. <laughs> mm. um, certainly for the for the moment and i think they talked about having a uh, sliding scale for different parts of the different nations based on like you know global global poverty indexes and, and things like that but mm. certainly at the moment for the initial phase of trying to get everyone vaccinated that one company that is making a covid vaccine has supplied it on a non-profit basis but mm. to my knowledge all, all the other companies that are, are making vaccines certainly are not doing that um, so it's it's still broadly true but i just thought it was an interesting very contemporary example yeah absolutely yeah okay so moving on to the second part of the text then Part two, communism. Helpfully, it starts with the definition of communism. This is a quote. Communism is not a utopian blueprint for the future, nor has it got anything to do with the communist regimes of the past, where capitalism was managed by the state. I think that thing about utopianism, I don't fully agree with it, because I think that the stage we're at 
in both the animal liberation movement and kind of on the left generally is that we do actually need some utopian blueprints. And I think that, I don't know about communism so much, but in terms of strategic plans, not even plans, but it's that thing we were talking about imagination. You know, we need more utopian thinking. We need to open our minds to what is possible um, so we can start building it back in order to come up with some strategies that might lead us there. So I think basically what I'm saying is I think it's okay to be a little bit utopian as long as we're not obviously completely, you know, in fantasy land. (laughs) We need some like, you know, actual strategies and tactics that you can measure and so on. I think in the animal liberation movement, or maybe not the animal liberation movement, maybe the mainstream veganism movement certainly lacks imagination. Yeah. Lacks utopian visions. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to... it's hard to picture what, for example, James Aspie's vision of uh, or world liberated for animals looks like, or mm-hmm. George Martin. I like. I mean, part of that is because I don't follow everything that they say, <laughs> so I don't. I don't. Maybe they have discussed that very pointedly in the past, but based based on what I I kind of have read and seen, it's hard to understand what they envision as a world free from animal exploitation what that would actually practically look like or even not even just pract- you know not even with the details but just like broadly would look like no in aspie's case especially uh there's no it's basically just kind of like generic quotes on instagram like, <laughs> um, you know a peace a world full of peace uh cruelty free you know where you can be like the best version of yourself and eat healthy foods sort of thing. That's basically it's, it. Yeah, it's marketing fluff. It's, yeah, exactly. There's nothing. It's like pure surface level bullshit. There's nothing there. There's no substance to it at all. Mm. Um, and as we know, um, George Martin recently um, has made comments about, you know, a perfect world basically would have no suffering in it. So, and that would include, we would need to e- e- genetically engineer carnivores so that they um, become herbivores or somehow kill off carnivores but in in a humane way basically <laughs> so it's funny how how for some for these type of vegans who always say you can't there's no humane way to kill an animal some of them are looking for humane ways to eradicate predators i think carnivores. i think this topic of like anti-predatory uh wildlife is something we'll end up returning to uh down mm. the line but also i guess we can also draw from from that idea of of george martin's that a world you know of of liberated animals includes science advanced enough to carry out genetic modification mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. <laughs> is interesting yeah yeah and it would be i mean if you're going to do genetic modifications on animals right you're basically going to be experimenting on them yeah to get you there so it's kind of like yeah it's very <laughs> fucked up logic mm. that has like no basis in sort of reality really i mean it's like you know what it is it's this hypothetical ethical crap that these folk like to talk about and we we don't live in a hypothetical world and i'm talking about utopian visions and stuff like that i mean you could say in a way that's kind of being hypothetical but there's a difference between imagination and like these kind of conundrums that people think up in order to basically to to moralize somehow mm. and 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 reach the peak of you know the most moral purest vegan thought you can have yeah is is kind of what they're aiming for it's bizarre yeah 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 and that, i guess that's kind of why it seems that their route to a uh, world free of animal exploitation doesn't involve more than just trying to convince people via via the internet and on the street with some videos mm-hmm. and some some chat some yeah some mm-hmm. some uh, preaching I guess yeah. it's yeah there's there's no 
No actual building. Yeah. No strategizing. Exactly. No no material uh, strategies there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Obviously, convincing people is part of it, but mm-hmm. that isn't the only part. And I would I would argue that's not even the most important part, really. <laughs> not yeah. not at this stage, anyway. Yeah, definitely. I'd agree. And actually, I highlighted a quote related to that, I guess, a little bit further on, where the authors of Beasts of Burden say, we believe that many of the activities carried out against the exploitation of animals fall into this category of gestures and attitudes, and are therefore expressions of the communist movement. And so when it's talking about gestures and attitudes, it's from a quote that sort of immediately precedes that where it says, today there are numerous gestures and attitudes which express not only a refusal of the present world, but most of all, an effort to build a new one. I think what they're they're saying, what they're kind of referring to, I'm guessing what they're referring to there is, for example, things like ALF raids on on labs, or mm-hmm. or um, I would say Shaq, but at the point of this, um, when this was written, a Shaq hadn't, hadn't quite started yet. It's, it's still the Hillgrove Cats uh, campaign as in that interim period but it's i guess it's showing this kind of like whether intentionally or not you know a, a lot of like animal rights direct action is an expression of of communism because it directly confronts capital and it directly confronts the systems of exploitation of of non-human animals it's, it's not just appealing to politicians to try and change something or it's not appealing mm-hmm. just trying to um get a you know petitions going and things like that Mm, yeah it's just it's just straightforward direct action that actually confronts the systems of exploitation within that process whether that's like yeah alf raids on labs or if it's sabs out in the field Mm. stopping hunts i guess that's really where the intersection of animal liberation and sort of anarchism or anarchy or like true communism um, really, yeah, that's where they converge, and how they can, and the point at which they can really speak to each other and, and share ideas and and have solidarity. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose um, my experience is that that is often the case, and and you, you'll know. I mean, you know a fair bit more about hunt sabbing um, than me. Is that you know those conversations and actions are taking place there? That is like the meeting of the left. The kind of leftist ideologies, if you want to call it, and animal liberation theory and practice. Mm. And I suppose that the challenge is how do we broaden it out from there? Because what we have is kind of like, it's great that we've got a leftist kind of animal liberation movement that is anti-capitalist and it's quite small, but it's well sustained and very active. So that's great. And then we've got, you know, the mainstream kind of capitalist veganism, which is always going to happen. We don't need to delve into that. We knew it was going to happen. You know, it's going to keep happening yeah. and it's not really going anywhere and we're not going to be able to change them. They're almost part of a different movement. So I suppose it's that thing about how do you build from where we are then? There was the animal rebellion um, action against McDonald's recently, which was kind of promising. Yeah. Yeah. I have been completely skeptical of animal rebellion um mm. until until they they did that action of shutting down the distribution plants because i yeah mm. that was that was a an intelligent thing to do the fact that they discovered that mcdonald's only has four distribution plants for the entire uk is <laughs> is genius in itself yeah, it is isn't it yeah yeah so it, it is promising and hopefully they build it i saw they did a follow-up action where they kind of had people just kind of mm. occupy seats at branches of mcdonald's which i thought was a bit weaker but i guess not every action has to be big and like ultra successful it's important to just keep things going sometimes momentum yeah just momentum building other people who maybe don't want to do direct action but want to get a taste of activism and stuff Mm. might be drawn into that it's a bit less you know less chance of getting arrested i suppose and things so i can see why they would do that yeah, it's you know, and it keeps the conversation going in the press and stuff as well. Yeah, and yeah, yeah uh, what what they did there is it's not the first time that sort of thing has has been done. Not even in recent history, because there were was it smash speciesism shut down a, a plant in Kent uh, mm-hmm. maybe eighteen months ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think didn't they? There was a Manchester one as well, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, there was is a Manchester one. Tulip, tulip, who do. Uh, pig slaughtering yeah i think they're in manchester yeah 
she live in Manchester. But that utilization of of kind of lock ons and, and blockades. So I I don't know enough about the detail of, for example, Shack or the live the campaign against live exports in the nineties to know if those tactics were used uh, at mm. any point during during those campaigns, the Shack or the live exports campaigns. But I feel like the lock ons and, and blockades is something in in sort of more recent history has in in the uk has has come more out of kind of environmental direct action and perhaps in in particular the anti-fracking uh movement which was you know as fiery and, and big and and ultimately very successful mm-hmm. that made huge use of of lock-ons and blockades mm-hmm. um to shut down depots and things um so maybe it's that's kind of where the inspiration is drawn from and, and that's great you know sharing sharing tactics or drawing on shared tactics and strategies mm-hmm. is is exactly the sort of thing that um that should that you know is is helpful and and really positive yeah that's where an awareness of history is really helpful you know mm. and and going to there's there's plenty of zines out there which have practical tips right on yeah. how, to, how to build things and so on um i just had a thought there when you said about how um there was only the four factories that supply mcdonald's in the uk it's really interesting because when you walk around any UK city, there's McDonald's everywhere, right? So it's easy to think, how are we ever going to fight this? They are absolutely everywhere. Mm. But what to remember about capitalism is one of its biggest weaknesses, or maybe the key weakness, is centralization. Mm. So the efficiency, or so-called wannabe efficiency of capitalism, it's not always efficient as it thinks it is, but the efficiency drive is a real weak point because they've got those four units because that's the most efficient thing for them why have Mm. them all spread out around the country when you can just centralize it get all the trucks there blah 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 that's what works for them but actually in this case you can flip it and it's a real weakness so for people looking for strategic things just think like the answer is actually there for you capitalism has provided its own kind of back door and that's even perhaps more more true now than it was like let's say 20 years ago mm-hmm. because of uh the digitization of everything and as we saw with that um can't remember the company but the the US the North American company oh, yeah. that got hacked and as a result of just like one hacking operation i mean it was obviously quite a major hacking operation mm-hmm. um but as a result of just one like their um processing was was the word used in, in the news article but their killing of 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 cows and pigs dropped by um you know 20 and 22 percent something like that mm-hmm. for the day and that's that's huge if it was possible to utilize that not just as a single hit but as like a, a part of a sustained campaign mm-hmm. you'd probably have to go in hard and uh, hard enough and fast enough because they'd probably build up some sort of resilience if, yeah. if it went on for too for too long yeah. but that could be a real blow mm-hmm. yeah that was i was just checking it out there uh, as a reminder yeah jbs which i think is actually a brazilian company but it was a north american and australian operations that were hit pretty hard and they they paid out 11 million dollars to these russian hackers to get their yeah. systems back online so yeah digitization digital world you know there's a lot of options there yeah, I think it's an entire area that hasn't really been explored by uh, animal liberation mm-hmm. movement yet, mm-hmm. but is ripe for the taking. Mm-hmm. So, listeners, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, we're not advocating any illegal not. activity, no. but just as a yeah, <laughs> as a as a brain exercise, yeah. that's yeah. that's something that hasn't necessarily been explored yeah. yet. A little bit of theory, theoretical hypotheticals there. That's the end of part one of our discussion of Beasts of Burden. Check out the next episode to hear part two. Whoop, whoop. That's the sound of the police. Whoop, whoop. That's the sound of the beast. Whoop, whoop. That's the sound of the police. Whoop, whoop. That's the yes, sound of the beast. Whoop, whoop. That's the sound of the police. Whoop, whoop. That's the sound of the beast. Whoop, whoop.
Shut 